in his study on the Psalms, and I wanted to follow the same format. I've enjoyed the format he's been using where he has a theme and covers um, two or three, maybe four Psalms under that theme. Now, because I'm just a fill-in, though, there's one thing that Tim does that I can't do tonight, and that is cover half of the lesson tonight and half of the lesson next week. So I'm going to do my best to get done so that I can get out of Tim's way and he can come back next week and continue this study. Uh, so the Psalms are rich. They're full of so many good themes. And Tim left it up to me to pick the theme. And uh, I was trying to do something different from what he has already done and not cover any of the Psalms that he's already covered. He's covered quite a few. Uh, there are 150 to choose from, though. So what I settled on is the subject of justice. I found three great Psalms that are very instructional on the subject of justice. And uh, that's what I want to go over with you tonight. The first Psalm I want to look at is Psalm 8. And this is where we start in Psalm 8. And the connection to justice here is when we see the dignity of all human beings from this Psalm, we've, we understand the foolishness of prejudice. So that's where we start. Psalm 8, among other things, has the application of the foolishness of prejudice. Now, prejudice is a word that's based on the word justice, and it means to prejudge someone, to judge a book by its cover, to violate John 7:24. Do not judge according to appearances, but judge with righteous judgment. When you size someone up, when you first meet them without learning anything about them, maybe because of the color of their skin or their height or their gender or whatever, you are prejudiced. And that is something God does not abide. There is no partiality with God. He's no respecter of persons. Acts chapter 10, verse 34, uh, James 2, 1 and following. God sees all of us alike in that we've all been made in the image of God. And he wants us to reflect his nature. And Psalm 8 is a good study to help us understand how God sees humankind and the equality of the dignity and glory of human beings. Let's read through it. Uh, it's a short psalm, so I think we can just read through it from top to bottom. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babies and infants you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you've set in place, what is man that you're mindful of him, and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings, and crowned him with glory and honor, and have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You've put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Now, of course, the central theme here is God and how majestic he is. And evidence of that is through his creation of human beings. Let's look at this. And what does it say? Well, David, the shepherd is gazing at the stars, and he starts to feel really small. You look at that universe out there, 
and you see some of the things they're talking about today, about space and the telescope that was brought out there that discovered, uh, what, millions more galaxies. It's just unbelievable how infinite space appears to be. And the bigger space gets, the more we look, the bigger it gets, the smaller we feel. Now, David, long before telescopes, was looking at the night sky, and he was feeling very small. And so he says in verses 3 and 4, When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars that you've set in place, what is man that you're mindful of him? Or the son of man that you care for him? What are we? Well, three things in the text reveal the true value of humanity. David speaking as a prophet, he instructs us in who we really are even when compared to the universe. So the first thing that he says is, you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings. Now that's the English Standard Version. You might be surprised by the Hebrew word that's translated heavenly beings. And maybe you remember this word from our study of names. We, we went through names one uh, set of Wednesday nights. Uh, the word used here is one of the names that we studied, the, the name Elohim. Now, does anybody remember what Elohim means? I'm sorry, I didn't hear. God. It means God. And uh, it's the name for God used in Genesis chapter 1. And in Genesis chapter 1, you have the creative power of God demonstrated. So it's usually connected with his might, his power. It's not the only name for God. Uh, Yahweh is his personal covenant name. Elohim is his name that usually demonstrates his power. So he says, you've made him a little lower, literally, than God. Now, Elohim is plural. That may be a reflection of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in one divine essence of God. Uh, but if you, tra if you used it without respect to the true and living God, its literal translation would be gods, which is why the ESV has heavenly beings in the plural. Now, another translation that you probably are familiar with, if you're not looking at it right now, is the angels. And that's what the Greek translation of the Old Testament said. And Jesus and his disciples, we know, read from the Greek translation called the Septuagint. And the writer of the book of Hebrews in Hebrews chapter 2 quotes the Greek translation, which is why when this psalm is quoted in Hebrews chapter 2, it says, you've made him a little lower than the angels. But the point remains the same. No matter how you translate this, heavenly beings, angels, or God, we are right under the celestial world in the pecking order of created beings. We are a little lower than the angels, and the animal kingdom, which he mentions next, is below us. We have been given dominion over this earth. And that is a tremendous responsibility, but also says a lot about our value and our dignity. So that's the point. He created man with dignity. And then he goes on to say, verse 5, the second part of verse 5, you've crowned him with glory and honor. 
Now, he did that when he created us on day six and made us in his own image. Of all the created beings, only human beings were made in the image of God. Now, that's an interesting study to think about what it means to be made in the image of God. And I found a great article by Brother Wayne Jackson, and uh, he asked the question, in what sense is humanity in the image of God? And I just wanted to share, you, share with you a summary of that. And here's what he says made in the image of God is. Uh, number one, man is unique among all living creatures. No animal or anything else on earth is described as being made in God's image. Number two, he possesses self-awareness. For example, David is saying, what, what is man? What am I? What is my nature? How am I compared to you? And why did you make me? You know, your dog doesn't say that or think that. Uh, a canary doesn't worry about what she looks like in the mirror. Or, you know, a snake doesn't fret over not having any legs. You know, animals don't have self-awareness. And sometimes it'd be good not to have self-awareness. But uh, it does tell us that we're so different from the animal kingdom. And, you know, it really gripes me, and I know the motive behind it, but it really gripes me when people call human beings animals. You know, evolutionary biology has made it almost necessary to support their idea to refer to man as just another ape or another animal. But we're not animals. Animals don't possess self-awareness. They're not made in the image of God. Number three, Brother Jackson says he's armed with a conscience. So another thing animals don't do is feel guilty, feel ashamed. I think it was Mark Twain who said, man, and again, here he violates what I was saying a minute ago, but he says, man is the only animal that can blush or needs to. Uh, so we need to blush and we can do that because we've been made in the image of God. And number four, he is endowed with feelings. He's been blessed with an appreciation of beauty of the arts, um, you know, I know the old saying about music soothes the savage beast, and, and, you know, maybe you have an animal that seems to be appreciative of the fine arts, or at least you interpret it that way, but isn't it an interesting thing that we are attracted to beauty, and how do you define beauty? We just love certain things for the love of it. Beauty is its own reward. There's no utility in beauty. Where do we get that? Well, God is love, and love is drawn toward that which it finds attractive. And so we have that capacity of love in us, which is reflected in our love of music, our love of art, our love of uh, good quality um, productions and, and all kinds of things in the, fine, in the world of fine arts and of literature and of people that we find beautiful inside and out. And then finally, um, Brother Jackson says in describing the image of God, in the words of Solomon, God has put eternity in man's heart. We long for eternal life. Uh, we were watching this nature show last night and this deer was on the side of a lake that an alligator was in. And this alligator was just sneaking up on the deer. And the deer was just sitting there. And then they go into slow motion. The alligator springs out and just barely misses the deer. 
And then the deer just trots off and then nibbles some grass and just it shows a close-up of his face and its face looked just like it did before it got attacked by the alligator. I'm thinking, what is wrong with this deer? Well, he, he doesn't have eternity in its heart. It doesn't contemplate its own mortality. It's not made in the image of God. And so as David is talking about being crowned with glory and honor, he's probably thinking about the day of creation when God made us in his own image. And that applies to every human being. That applies to the murderer on death row. That applies to the most seasoned saint in this congregation. That applies to a newborn baby. That applies to each and every human being. That doesn't mean everyone's going to heaven. But everyone has that baseline of having been created in the image of God. He goes on to say, verses 6 through 8, You've given him dominion over the works of your hands and put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. So he had to be thinking about Genesis 1 when he wrote this psalm, because after the statement that we've been made in the image of God, uh, Moses goes on to explain that God put all things under mankind's feet. Uh, all things, he had dominion over all living creatures. Uh, we're in charge of the world, in other words. So this shows you the dignity, the glory, and the honor, and the authority of human beings. And it's not a psalm that just applies to Christians. It applies to all human beings, which means prejudice is a discriminatory practice that is not biblical. Alexander Pope said, the proper study of mankind is man. But I disagree with that statement. The proper study of mankind is the Bible. Because if you have human beings in charge of what man is, you'll come up with all kinds of strange anthropological ideas that aren't true, that are discriminatory. We are prejudiced, and that is a sinful part of our flesh. That's not God's will for our lives. God's will is that we all deserve some kind, some level of respect, human dignity. Uh, so that's why Paul calls on us, Romans 13, 7, Pay to all what is owed to them, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. And look at 1 Peter 2.17. Honor everyone. Everyone. Now, not to the same degree. You put it together with Romans, and it's the respect that that person is owed. So remember the baseline. This is a human being with immortal potential made in the image of God. Maybe it's an awful person and I need to be careful around that person, but I should never curse that person because even the worst of us has been made in the image of God. Prejudice is wrong. Always remember that. You can't size somebody up by their appearances. Psalm 8 tells you the very least of what they are, and it's great. Okay, let's turn to Psalm 67. We'll get to Psalm 67, and this psalm teaches us the meaning of justice. And again, it's a, it's a short psalm, so we're going to read it in its entirety. 
May God be gracious to us and bless us and make His face to shine upon us that Your way may be known on earth, Your saving power among all nations. Let the peoples praise You, O God. Let all the peoples praise You. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy, for You judge the peoples with equity and guide the nations upon earth. Let the peoples praise You, O God. Let all the peoples praise You. The earth has yielded its increase. God, our God, shall bless us. God shall bless us. Let all the ends of the earth fear Him. So we're going to try to learn a little bit about the meaning of justice from Psalm 67. And you'll notice the many references to humankind as a, as a whole. If you go back through there, verse 2, all nations. Verse 3, all the peoples. Verse 7, all the ends of the earth. This just isn't, isn't just Israel, it's, it's everyone. But I really want you to look at verse 4. And we'll read that again. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy... Why? For you judge the peoples with equity and guide the nations upon earth. So God is just. Um, again, I'm reading from the ESV. It says you judge the peoples with equity. King James says you judge the, the peoples righteously. And the New American Standard Bible says you judge them in fairness. So that's what justice is. It's fairness, it's equity, it's righteousness. Not unfairly putting one person over the other, not showing favoritism, making all things as they should be, setting the world upright. And what is the general attitude towards judgment here in verse 4? Is it positive or negative? Be glad and sing. It's positive, right? Uh, let the nations be glad and sing for joy because you judge the people with equity. Now, is that the way we usually look at God's justice? Even um, justice on earth, uh, we usually have a very solemn view of it. And when we talk about Judgment Day and sing about Judgment Day, it's usually with gravity for obvious reasons, right? Because on Judgment Day, all humankind will be separated into two parts. I don't think it's going to be any news to anybody on that day because the moment we pass from this world into the next, we know where we're going. And we learn from passages like Luke 16 that we're immediately in a place of comfort if we were washed by the blood of Jesus or of torment if we were not, if our sins were not cleansed. So on Judgment Day, it's not going to be a time of decision. The decision has already been made. But at that point, going forward, all injustice will vanish away. You see, if I died today and the Lord didn't come back, there would still be injustice in this world. And there will be injustice until Jesus returns. But when Jesus returns, there's judgment and everything's going to be put right. There will be no more wickedness that goes unpunished, not even temporarily. There will be no more injustices that are overlooked, unfairness. All things will be made right. And that's what all the worship and joy and rejoicing is all about, 
and it's consistent with several other psalms. Turn back to Psalm 58. Look at verse 11. Mankind will say, surely there is a reward for the righteous. Surely there is a God who judges on earth. There's longing in that statement. And, if, you know, most of us have, have had a pretty good life so far. We live in a country, it's not perfect, but we have freedom. We have a constitution that upholds the rights of human beings. But in other parts of the world... People are suffering injustices and violations of human rights that are just unthinkable to us. And these passages like Psalm 58 verse 11 resonate more with them perhaps than with us. I mean, maybe we got a bad deal in a car accident or the insurance company didn't come through for us or you know, our appraisal didn't come up on our house as high as we would have liked it. And those are not diminishing anybody's problems that are greater than that. I realize that some people have a worse time than that. But a lot of times, those are the things we gripe about. Those are our injustices. And so we look at this and we think, how can somebody say, you know, surely there is a God who judges the earth. But if you've been oppressed the way these people were, you might feel the same way. Look at Psalm 94, verse 2. Psalm 94, 2, rise up, O judge of the earth, repay the proud what they deserve. There are about 12 of these psalms in uh, the book of Psalms called imprecatory psalms. That's a big word that just has to do with curses that are called down to earth uh, by people who are praying for God to exercise vengeance upon their enemies. Uh, Tim has talked about uh, Psalm 137. That's probably the strongest example of an imprecatory psalm. We have a taste of it here where he's saying, you know, rise up, judge of the earth, repay the proud. How long shall the wicked, how long shall the wicked exult? Take vengeance upon the wicked. And then one more. I want you to look at Psalm 96, verses 11 through 13. And again... Like Psalm 67, you see celebration over the justice of God. Let the heavens be glad, let the earth rejoice, let the sea roar and all that fills it. Let the field exult and everything in it. Then shall all the trees of the forest sing for joy before the Lord, for He comes, for He comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in His faithfulness. Uh, Tim has spent the last couple of weeks talking about the artistry of the Psalms and some of the poetic devices. We see a poetic device used here called personification. You know, the, the heavens and the seas and the fields don't literally sing for joy. The trees don't literally sing for joy. But what he's saying is all the earth rejoices over the judgment of God. He will judge the world in righteousness and his peoples in faithfulness. If you're oppressed, then you welcome that judgment. Uh, if you're wicked, of course, you, you don't want to see it coming. New Testament says the same thing. Look at uh, Matthew 25, verses 31 and 32. This is the parable of the sheep and goats. When the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne and before Him will be gathered all the nations 
And he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. Notice all the nations. He will judge in equity. Uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10. 2 Corinthians 5.10, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due, see what is fair, what is due for what he has done in the body, whether it is good or evil. So he's going to receive what is due, that's the fairness, the righteousness, the equity of God's justice. And so there are plenty of other passages we could look at. How is this related to the prejudice we read about uh, in Psalm 8? Well, justice is the opposite of prejudice. Prejudice looks at superficial things. Justice looks at the soul. Now, if it were just that and that was the end of the story, we'd all be in trouble. Because if we get what we deserve, what do we get? Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. But there is no condemnation, to finish the thought later in Romans 8, 1, for those who are in Christ Jesus, because in Jesus, Paul explains in Romans 3, God is just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So he demonstrated his righteousness on the cross. Jesus bore our sins so we don't have to. And all the world needs to know this good news that although we deserve vengeance in God's justice, Christ paid the debt so that we do not have to stand condemned on Judgment Day. And therefore, we can rejoice at Judgment Day. It doesn't have to be something that is um, fearsome to us. John talks in John 4.19 about having boldness before the judgment seat of God. Confidence. You should have confidence. That doesn't mean you should be proud or arrogant or not regret the sins of the past, but moving forward, you know you've been cleansed by the blood of Jesus. And you shouldn't be afraid to, to face God in judgment. So that's God's justice. Uh, you know, I guess we should, before we move on, ask the question, is Justice is judgment something that sometimes can be distinguished from justice? Is there ever a difference between judgment and justice? And the answer is yes. Sometimes judgment isn't just. And that's why we have Matthew 7, 1. Judge not that you be not judged. But there's not a catch-all command that applies to all discrimination. You know, later on, I'm going to talk about this Sunday, but uh, later on in Matthew 7, verse 6, Jesus says, Do not give what is holy to the dogs. Do not cast your pearls before the swine. Now, how are you supposed to know the difference between dogs and the people who deserve the holy things and the swine and the people who deserve the pearls if you don't discriminate a little bit? And then uh, Matthew 7, same chapter as Judge Not That You Be Not Judge. Matthew 7, 15, Beware of false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. Now they look like sheep. So how do we know? 
You have to discriminate. He says, you shall recognize them by their fruits, verse 16. So they're teaching. You look at their teaching, you hold it next to the word of God. If it's different from the word of God, they're a false prophet. Plain and simple. So John 7, 24 sums it up. Do not judge according to appearances, judge with righteous judgment. Uh, we live in an age where sinful activity, like homosexuality, is held as being the same as, you know, skin color or gender or nationality. And uh, the LGBT community talks about civil rights. So how do we respond to that? You know, uh, is that good discrimination or bad discrimination? Well, we go back to what we learned about prejudice in Psalm 8 and the dignity and glory and honor of every human being. And so we start off with this. It's never right to mistreat a human being because of the choices he or she has made in life. Right? It's never right to, to bully somebody or to be violent towards somebody or to show hatred. Even our enemies are to be loved, Matthew 5, 44. And so if somebody is committing homosexual activity, we're not to hate those people, even if we disagree with them. We're to, we're to minister to them in love. However, we can't endorse their activity because that activity, like all sin, is to be revealed as unrighteous so that we can see righteousness. And so it's not the same as skin color or, uh, you know, nationality or gender. It's different from that. Um, I also wanted to point out, I skipped over this part, but there are some psalms involved in this. We're, so God champions equality. He champions equality when it comes to justice. And there are several examples of this. Regarding the poor, God is the father of the fatherless and protector of the widows, Psalm 68, verse 5. And he says in Psalm 41, verse 1, blessed is the one who considers the poor. Regarding race, Christ came and died to remove all enmity between the races so that there's no longer any Jew or Gentile, Galatians 3, 28. Yeah, Mark. Okay. Cursing the unbelievers? Okay, yeah, yeah. Right, no, you wouldn't gloat. Yeah. No, no. I mean, there's a difference between gloating and worship. And so what we're reading in the Psalms is celebration, worship, uh, joy over the end of wickedness. Nobody will be duped by the devil's lies anymore. Nobody will suffer crime, murder, rape, bullying, etc. 
you know, that ends at Judgment Day. So um, the other part of it is when you love people, you don't want to see them condemned. You know, so, you know, 1 Timothy 2, 3, and 4, God desires all people to be saved. That's where we should be. But he's also going to punish the unrighteous. And we should be okay with that in the sense that we want justice. And that, that's why you feel so enraged when you suffer injustice. That's the image of God in you. Because God is just. But you don't take it in your own hands. You know God will take care of it one day. And so there'll be rejoicing, but not gloating. Worship, not hatred uh, in that way. Any other questions along that line? Um, I didn't realize I was running out of time so quickly. Psalm 133. It's not so quickly. It's the same amount of time every week, right? It's just fun when you're up here, I guess. Time flies when you're having fun. Psalm 133. Behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. So... In Israel, of course, brothers were the physical nation of Israel. For us, the covenant people are brothers and sisters in Christ. And when we dwell in unity, it is, he says, good and it is pleasant. So this is when God has made us just. When he has made all things right in our soul, we should be united together. These are the results of justice. And the results of justice are twofold, pleasant and good. There's an illustration of pleasant in verse 2. I like the way this psalm is outlined. You have the introduction, when brothers who are brought together in justice dwell in unity, it is both good and pleasant, and you have an illustration of pleasant in verse 2. It is like the precious oil on the head, running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron, running down on the collar of his robes. This is referring to the anointing of priests. Uh, kings were also anointed. Prophets were sometimes anointed. And the anointing oil was a specific oil, the recipe of which you can find in Exodus 30, 22 and following. I looked it up. Uh, it's composed of liquid myrrh, sweet-smelling cinnamon, aromatic cane, cassia, and olive oil. I don't know what some of those things are, aromatic cane and cassia, but I kind of imagine like essential oils or something, you know, that people like to use. It was both soothing, it was good for the skin, it smelled good, it was something that was comforting, it was expensive, so it was a rare pleasure, and that is, is something pleasant. And the unity of people who live in justice should be pleasant. And then the second illustration illustrates good. Verse 3. It is like the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord has commanded the blessing, life forevermore. Hermon is a mountain north in northern Palestine. Uh, it has three peaks, two of which are in excess of 9,000 feet, which is a pretty tall for Palestine. Uh, you know, the highest peak in Alabama is like 3,200 feet. 
So three times that, you can get snow on mountains like that. In Palestine, where it snows very rarely, and where it's arid and dry from April to October. During that time around Mount Hermon, the snow is evaporating and then condensing down into dew, which makes it green all around that area when it's very dry in the rest of Palestine. And this is an illustration of good. Now, it's good as God defines good, not necessarily what we think might be good. And unity among brothers brought together in justice is good, as God defines it. It is pleasant. So just to go back over that in summary, chapter 8, the foolishness of prejudice. You can't, you know, all human beings are made in the image of God. That means they have dignity, they have glory, they have honor. We shouldn't discriminate based on superficial things. Psalm 67, the meaning of God's justice is putting all things right, making all things right, equity, fairness, righteousness. And then finally, the results of justice are seen in Psalm 133, with the brothers dwelling in unity, when we find justice through God, when he makes us righteous, it is both pleasant and it is good. So I think all of those loosely tie together in that way around the theme of justice. Anything anybody wants to bring up quickly as we bring this to a close? All right, well, that's all I've got for tonight, so we'll be dismissed.